Uh, some of us are feeling a bit sorry for ourselves this evening with the, the man flu. But if you were to go to the doctors uh, with something which actually was serious, uh, like a, a burst ulcer or something really uh, serious, and uh, it explained that you were in a bad way, it wouldn't be helpful if the doctor was to simply uh, tell you to smile and be happy. That your symptoms, although you're coughing blood and all the rest of it, were, were not that serious. They're within the, the, the normal spectrum and really you just had to get on with life and, and, and be happy. Uh, you would have a right to be rather indignant. In fact, a doctor that gave out that kind of uh, advice to uh, a very serious condition uh, would rightly be struck off the roll. But in the spiritual realm, uh, there are practitioners, there are preachers of the word who act in the same way with the warnings of God, with some of the, the solemn uh, material that we have. They will ignore uh, much of these things and they will condemn uh, any uh, biblical view of sin as being, oh, very negative, very judgmental. And for many churches today, uh, up and down the land, the idea of uh, being a good church is being inclusive and affirming. Inclusive and affirming of all kinds of lifestyles and all kinds of beliefs. But just as it's absurd to avoid a proper diagnosis of physical health, so it's beyond crazy uh, for people who have no relationship with God through Jesus Christ to avoid facing up to the reality of their condition. And that's why we need to take uh, such passages as Romans 1, difficult though they are. We have to read them, we have to take them seriously, and we have to, to proclaim the warnings that they sound forth. Now we've seen that the great theme of Romans is the righteousness of God. And as a foundation to telling us how we are to receive this righteousness, Paul, first of all, is declaring that we lack this righteousness. We don't have a righteousness. And because of that, we will be uh, excluded from God's presence forever because of that. And he goes on, he is, he is making clear the fact that God uh, would be just, he would be vindicated in judging all of us because all of us know the truth. All of us have knowledge sufficient to acknowledge God. And he does a thoroughgoing job of looking at, first of all, what they would call the pagan world or the non-Jewish world, and then the Jews themselves, and then all people, people who take a, a moralistic line and, and uh, tut tut at others and find that they themselves are condemned by their own judgments. And so Paul declares in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, and here's the key bit, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And in the, the verses that uh, we're looking at this evening as we conclude uh, looking at chapter 1, 
Uh, Paul is telling us how it is this wrath is revealed, how it's working out in the lives of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And there's a recurring pattern, a recurring pattern in verses 21 to 32. It's a pattern of ever-decreasing, ever-increasing deterioration. It's a downward spiral described in horrific detail. Uh, First, Paul asserts the fact that people are without excuse because they do have knowledge. Then he asserts that they have rejected the knowledge that they do have. And then thirdly, he shows how God gives them over to the consequences of their sin. And our focus is on this evening is on the consequences of rejecting the truth. Man without God retains a guilty knowledge of God. There have been some pretty big lessons even thus far in Romans. One crucial theme is what we call general revelation. Okay? This idea that uh, apart from this book, apart from the Bible itself, there is uh, another book. There's the book of creation in which God speaks to people. And that creation being we ourselves, constituted in God's image, and therefore are innately religious. Uh, we have a moral inclination. We, we, we make moral judgments, which is inexplicable other than because we have been made in the image of a moral God. We are incurably religious. Wherever you go, uh, people have a desire to worship. And when they reject the true God, they don't stop being religious for that reason. They, they simply worship other things. Either, as in the case of the pagan world that, that Paul is addressing, they'll, they'll make images uh, to make to make them look like, like man, birds, and reptiles, and so on, and, and in great folly they'll bow down to them, or in our sophisticated age, uh, they'll worship idols of steel and rubber, their cars, or their families, or holidays. They'll devote passion to things other than God in a religious manner. And then all around us, not just within us, but all around us, there is this testimony to the fact that God is there. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We have this constant revelational pressure all around us. Continually, comprehensively, compellingly saying, the hand that made me is divine. So that men are without excuse. Ultimately, There is no such thing as an atheist. Only people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What we see does not teach us salvation. Doesn't tell us about a saviour. But it tells us that there is a God. And that we ought to seek him. And worship him and give him thanks. But, Paul says, not only do men know the truth, they reject it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Verse 21. Second 
second uh, downward spiral. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the created, the creator who is forever praised. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So three times in these three uh, many sections, three times Paul is saying uh, that they had the truth. Uh, they didn't consider it worthwhile retaining the truth. Uh, they exchanged the truth. The truth's mentioned three times. The guilty knowledge of God. These are telling ways of describing how people reject the truth. Uh, he's saying, first of all, they didn't allow the truth that they have to, to come to fruition. The fruition, truth supposed to bear fruit. It should make us glorify God. It should lead to worship. It should lead to thankfulness. But they didn't allow it to do that. Secondly, they made a bad exchange. Having a grasp of the truth, they made a bad trading. They traded, Paul says, the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped the things that God has made rather than the creator. And then finally, they showed contempt uh, for God by placing such a low value on the knowledge of God that they discarded it. They threw away a heavyweight truth as though it was some kind of a polystyrene cup and replaced it with what is actually lightweight and worthless. They made this bad trade. And having shown this deepening contempt, this progressive contempt for God's revelation, God, we're told, gave them over in increasing measure to the outworking of sin. And this is the way that God reveals his wrath. Now, when people speak of the wrath of God, uh, they've got something very different in mind. When people speak about the wrath of God, they are, they're thinking very often, people in the, in the street, outside the church, they're, they're very often thinking of uh, the things that uh, insurance, insurance documents call acts of God, which is a strange expression, isn't it? As though uh, bad things were acts of God and everything else is not an act of God. But people think that uh, if God is going to show his wrath, then it will be a, a lightning bolt striking somebody. Or somebody being swallowed up in a sinkhole that opens up, you know, in a street and, and engulfs them, or an earthquake. Or you hear people say rather stupidly, I think, you know, if I was to go to church, then the, the roof would fall in on me. And that is, is what people conceive of as the wrath of God. Now, because of the providence of God, it may well be that things like that are God demonstrating his judgment. And whenever uh, something like that happens, we ought always to, to consider what God is, is saying through something like that. But that is not what the, the scripture here says the wrath of God is. He says it's a giving over by God of sinners to their sin. We see it three times. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to sinful lusts. Verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So, 
the, the revealing of the wrath of God is a giving over of people to sin. It involves God delivering us into the hands of our own desires. So we see God's hand of judgment when we see him withdrawing the restraints in society against sin and that sin beginning to work itself out in our conduct individually and corporately. And Paul saying that sin in and of itself is its own punishment. Unrestrained sin in the end of the day is its own punishment. This is the great irony. Men and women I want to find freedom, fleeing from God. They resent God. In, in fact, the, the truth of the matter is they hate God. They would, they would gladly uh, murder God if that were possible. They're in flight from God. They're saying, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I am the master of my own ship. I am the commander of my own destiny. Why don't you leave me alone? I don't need God telling me what I should do, who I should worship or where I should go. I want to do my own pleasure. And for a time, God's restraining grace, his common grace, keeps people in check. Their conscience, uh, that kind of remnant of the fear of God, holds them in awe of going too far. And then there comes the point where God withdraws restraint and says, you've made your choice. Have your fill. Feel its sorrows. And hell will be such a place. Hell will be a place of men's choosing, a place away from God which at the same time is a place of unending remorse and anguish. Sin is its own punishment. And last time when we were looking at the, what was really the, the first of these cycles, we were looking at the last two this, this evening, but the first of the cycles, uh, we saw that God gave them over to uh, a mind being darkened. As they turned away from God, their mind was darkened. And there's huge irony in that because we never think that we're going into the darkness when we turn away from God. There, there was this period in the 18th century which uh, the historians call the Enlightenment. And basically that was a rejection of supernatural authority, of divine authority. Now sometimes uh, the results were, were fruitful. The new attitude uh, to challenge every uh, established authority led to some advances in science and in the arts. But not everywhere. In France, it led to the, the guillotine of the French Revolution. And it's still true that the louder that people proclaim that they have their own light, the deeper they are walking into the darkness. And along with that futile thinking, Paul said that there were there was sexual license. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their own body. Now, it's interesting that uh, the, the scholars think that Paul is probably writing this letter from Corinth. There's no actual uh, mention of Corinth, but piecing together some of the details uh, from Acts and some of the names at the end, it's likely that he's writing from Corinth. And quite possibly, as Paul is writing, he's, he's looking up onto that hill 
where the, the temple of, to Aphrodite was situated. And Paul knows the kind of degraded stuff that goes on in there with the shrine prostitutes and all of the, the, the lewd acts that are, are perpetrated in the, the false religion of Corinth. But it would get worse. The foolish exchange of the truth of God. Uh, and Paul means the, 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 the truth of God, the revelation that God has given out there and in here that he is God, is exchanged for the lie. It literally is. The lie. What's the lie? The lie is that matter is all that there is. That there is no one God. There's an exchange. Truth exchanged for a lie. And then the wrath of God is paralleled. There's another exchange. It's exchange there's an exchange in natural relations for unnatural ones. Now this is this is a step downwards from the, the, the sinful immorality that was already spoken of. Uh, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, and adultery, which is when a married person has sex with somebody else outside that marriage bond. They are both, in a sense, natural sins. Not in the, not in the sense that uh, they are any less serious but in the sense that it involves natural activities in wrongful settings. But homosexuality, on the other hand, is unnatural. The, the basic anatomical realities confirm to anyone with sense that it is an unnatural activity. And Paul actually cites uh, lesbianism at first because it is in one sense uh, even more shocking. Uh, because in the, the Roman world of, of Paul's day, homosexuality was rife, especially in, amongst the powerful. Of the first 15 emperors, Roman emperors, 14 of them were homosexual. But amongst women, it was less common. But the fact that it's there is shocking. Even women, Paul says. Why pick out homosexuality? Doesn't this prove that, that Christians are always picking on uh, a beleaguered minority within the population. As Paul is saying here, uh, these people are, whatever percentage they are, these 2% or 5% or whatever, these people are so much worse than the rest that they really need my gospel. No, he, he's not making out that they are more sinful than the rest. His point is that Homosexuality clearly underlines the nature of sin to reject what is patently true. It involves the rejection of what, to all common sense, is natural. And also, it illustrates the pervasiveness of sin. He's saying, look at this obvious example of disordered thinking and living which is homosexuality it's found across society it's found in some of the most creative of people it hits intelligent people hits productive people this is the evidence of the pervasiveness of sin 
and hence the, the, the pervasive need for the gospel. Is homosexuality wrong? Yes, it is. Is it the worst sin? No. Does it need to be repented of and forgiven? Absolutely. Along with greed and gossip and other sin. The trouble, of course, is that today uh, it's denied that it is wrong. Both inside the church as well as outside of it. And people want to make a case for it being acceptable to God. And really, it's, you come to, to Romans 1 and you think to yourself, how could, how could anybody, anybody seek to make a case for it being acceptable to God? And, and such a reaction, of course, is quite right. Um, but nevertheless, they do. And some claim that it is a pederasty or the abuse of young boys by older homosexuals that is spoken of here, and that it is so wrong because it is uh, because of the shame and abuse that's involved there. But consenting relationships aren't involved. There's absolutely no evidence that Paul is making such a distinction. It's simply reading into the text something that is uh, not in Paul's view at all. Uh, and then the other argument is that Paul has in mind here uh, heterosexual people uh, who engage in homosexual acts. So for heterosexual people, this would be an unnatural way of relating, whereas for homosexual people, it would be natural. So for it to be called unnatural, it's simply because it's not doing what uh, is in accord with their orientation. So the argument goes. But again, that is simply reading something into the text which isn't there. The whole idea that we're familiar with today, this idea of orientation, uh, was something which uh, wasn't really on the table at all uh, in Paul's day. It was simply homosexuality practiced or not. There are five passages, at least in the Bible, which make it absolutely clear that homosexual practice is sinful before God. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, in the story of Sodom, Moses makes it crystal clear that homosexual activity, all of it, is wrong. Judges uh, 19, that dark, dark passage, the story of Gibeah, uh, in no uncertain terms, it's taught again, homosexuality is wrong. Uh, Moses again, in Leviticus 18, Le Leviticus 20, absolutely clear homosexuality is wrong, is sinful. And the language that Paul is using in Romans 1 is drawn uh, right out of the Greek translation of Leviticus 18 and 20. Here we have again, at Romans 1, uh, Paul describing decadent pagan uh, practice. Again, absolutely clear homosexuality is wrong. You go to 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 6, and in that list of sins uh, that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, again, we have homosexuality mentioned. So, consistently throughout the Bible, it is argued that homosexual is, homosexuality is wrong. Even within the debates in the Church of Scotland, when they were debating uh, whether uh, homosexuals could become ministers, it was acknowledged in the report that whenever the Bible touches on the subject, it is consistently negative 
towards homosexuality. That is an understatement. You need to make all kinds of cartwheels in order to come to any other conclusion. The final way that God's wrath is expressed, the final way in which he's said to give over, is verse 28. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Gave them over to a depraved mind. Uh, there's an ancient proverb uh, that says, those the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. That's actually quite, quite in keeping with what Paul is saying here uh, in terms of the depraved mind. Earlier in this descent, this, this kind of threefold uh, downward spiral, uh, Paul has spoken of God giving them over to foolish thinking and darkened hearts. Now, as men continued to reject God and walk in sin, a point is reached when the mind can be said to, de to be depraved. A terrible point. The mind is so ruled by sin that it begins to think that what is bad is actually good and what is good is bad. Now you can see that. You can see that uh, even in our schools in relation to uh, the, the preceding subject. Uh, how are our young people taught to regard homosexuality today? Well, they're, they're taught to affirm it, you know, uh, homosexuals are an, an embattled, a persecuted minority and therefore they must be supported and to, to voice uh, any negative thoughts about it is to be uh, or judgmental or oppressive or all things wrong. And so you have this, this inversion of the, the, the truth. You know, black is white and white is black. And why is that? Well, it's down here. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Our, our thinking was so confused. And you tremble for our young people. How are they to cope unless they have a strong Christian worldview inculcated in them, in the home and in the church? Now, in the last section, the description of uh, the sinfulness of sin is, is rounded out. It's no longer uh, homosexuality. It's all kind of, of vices. In fact, there are 21 vices. Uh, the beginning of the, of the, the passage, these, this threefold descent, uh, began with godlessness, sin against God. Uh, the sins that are listed here are, by and large, apart from God-hating, are, by and large, uh, wickedness, sin against humanity. Uh, we, we're not going to go through it, but uh, just to, to alight on, on a few of these, there is greed. Uh, elsewhere, the same word translated covetousness, the sin of simply wanting more and more and more. Envy, the fact uh, that we, we hate the fact that someone has more than we do, which in extreme can lead on to the sin of murder, but in any case will lead to strife and deceit and malice. Now, Think of the kind of attitudes that are lauded and applauded today. Very often, these things are condoned. The ambitious spirit, 
the go-get-it spirit, the, the guy that knows what has to be done to achieve, to get somewhere. Well, these are the people that we put on a pedestal. The depraved mind is no longer able to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. Arrogance and boastfulness, gossip, slander, insolence, all sins of, of the tongue. Uh, disobedience against parents. Uh, again, sin obviously reflected in, in the, 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 the commandment. How characteristic it is of society that you no longer have uh, reverence for the older generation in the family. And then Paul summarizes uh, the, 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 the situation. They are without sense, without faith, without heart, without pity. And in all these things, in all this acting, in all this sinning, they are sinning knowing that God has judged such activity and such activity deserves death. They are sinning against the light. There is still light there, even in this uh, intellectual depravity. They are still without excuse. And in all these things, God's judgment, the revealing of God's wrath, is not thunderbolts and collapsing roofs, but giving over, giving over, giving over. And where's the gospel? Where's the gospel in all this? The gospel in all this is that when God gives over, he does not give up. There is hope. Paul's argument is not humanity is without hope. The argument that he's making is humanity is without excuse. Given over to sin, they've not been given up by God. There is a saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood can cleanse the vilest sin. Now we're back in Corinth again. And we're thinking of, of the apostle penning these words, writing this graphic description of the darkness of the human condition. Possibly to his mind comes the, the life stories of the people uh, for whom he is now serving as pastor. These folks in Corinth, brought up in, in the cesspool of the Roman world. People whose lives were polluted by degrading sin. And they've been changed. And they're gathering hungry for the word of God when he meets with them. And he had written to these very people, to these Corinthians, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And it sinks in. And he goes on. But you were washed. You were sanctified. 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you know, we, we don't really appreciate the gospel until we see sin in its awful colors, until we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We don't, it's, we don't see uh, its glorious counterpart, the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. God gave them over. He did not give them up. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Father, we thank you for the sin-cleansing power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blood that we thought of this morning. Thank you that when Jesus shed his blood on Calvary, it was to cleanse us clean from the sins described in this awful chapter. And Lord, we, we cannot but see our own history in, in these words. For we know, Lord, that we were guilty as the rest. And that but by your grace, we would have gone on to have become hardened and depraved in our thinking. We thank you that you are the God of mercy. You are patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to our knowledge of the truth. We thank you for that precious blood that cleanses us from the filth of sin. And for the beauty of our Savior, through whom we have hope. We pray in his precious name.